Bible Biogs in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, one character at a time. Author, pastor and Bible teacher Mike Beaumont is in conversation with David Taverner. In this episode, we're focusing on Isaiah, a major prophet, Mike. We were talking last time about Hosea being a minor prophet. What's the difference between a minor prophet and a major prophet? Yeah, well, like we said last time, not a difference in importance, but it's a term that scholars tend to use to describe really really the length of the work. So there are four so-called major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. Why? Because they are quite long works. In contrast to the 12 minor prophets, of whom one was a Hosea, as you said in a previous episode, whose works are much smaller. So we shouldn't think of this as more important. After all, all of this is God's word. But clearly, when we come to Isaiah, it's pretty obvious straight away we are looking at a major work here. 66 chapters covering quite a period of crucial time in Israel's history and containing some of the most precious parts of Scripture that that many people will hold on to. In sort of simple terms, how is it broken down then, that, those 66 chapters? It's broken down into, well, some scholars divide it into two sections, some scholars divide it into three. But basically we get chapters 1 uh, to 39 are prophecies that lead up to when Judah will be exiled. And then chapters 40 to 55, he really does start prophesying in the sense of looking ahead to the future, to the end of the exile that hasn't even happened yet. So he's seeing that because Israel, Judah isn't walking in God's ways, then judgment will come. And in chapters 40 to 55, he, he looks ahead to events at the end of the exile that's actually 150 years away yet. Now, some people struggle with that, thinking, how could he see that far ahead? Well, for me, it depends on how big your God is. If God can't see things, who can? And then chapters 56 to 66 look even further ahead to the return from that exile that hasn't even happened yet. So this guy has amazing vision. And of course, as many of us will know, in the midst of all of those prophecies that first and foremost were about his time and the generations immediately to come, suddenly he's caught ahead to get glimpses of the coming Messiah. And I often describe it as, you know, in, in movies these days, we often get flashbacks mm. to see what happened to get us to this point. Isaiah got flash forwards. <laughs> he's suddenly there and he suddenly gets a flash forward to something that Jesus is going to do. Hundreds of years later. Hundreds of years Well, that sounds later. exciting. We'll come on to that in a minute. But just, just remind us, where, where is Isaiah living? Who's he talking to? Where is, is this all happening? So Isaiah was one of those prophets that lived in the southern nation of Judah. Based around Jerusalem. Yeah. We've said many times that after Solomon's death, the nation split into two, Israel in the north, Judah in the south, Judah alone, the true descendants of King David on the throne. Israel, a whole bunch of breakaway and renegades and people who killed other people. So this is the true descendants of 
King David. And so he is ministering to Judah, to that area around Jerusalem in the south. And his ministry lasted from around about 740 to 686 BC. And 740 is is the big turning point when he gets his call to be a prophet that he describes in chapter 6. What sort of call was that? It's an amazing chapter and one of my favourite chapters in the Bible. The chapter starts out, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Now we read that and think, hmm, oh, another king's dead. But that was 740 BC. King Uzziah, uh, also called King Azariah in, in uh, Two Kings, because kings often had more than one name. King Uzziah had reigned for 52 years, an incredibly long time mm. in those days. It had been a time of peace and prosperity and stability. And it's like the king has died. Oh, my goodness, what's going to happen now? And you can imagine perhaps the, the alarm in the nation of what would happen. And it's at that point when the king dies that Isaiah has a vision. And what does he has a vision of? He has a vision of the king of kings seated on his throne, this picture of him being on his throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filling the temple, and angels crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And it's as if God is saying to him, Isaiah, the king may have died, but the king is still on his throne. And it's such an overwhelming experience of the holiness of God that holiness will become a big theme throughout his prophesying. In fact, his favorite name for God throughout his prophecies is the Holy One of Israel. And I think it all goes back to this incredible, overwhelming, overpowering experience of a vision in which he saw the Holy God on his holy throne. And of course, the first thing he wants to do when he's confronted with this holiness is to say, Oh my goodness, I'm a dunner. Hmm. That's the Mike Beaumont loose translation. <laughs> but it communicates what is there. He goes on to say, I'm unclean and I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Somehow he seemed to be aware that what came out of his mouth had not been good. Of all the sin in his life, it was his speech that he was aware of. And guess what God does? He he sends an angel to take a coal from the altar, presumably the altar in heaven that mm. he, he he's seeing in this vision. And the coal touches his lips and he's told, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sins are atoned for. In other words, You've confessed your sin. Here's the first thing I'm going to do, Isaiah. I'm going to cleanse and forgive you. And then he hears this voice from heaven saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I often imagine it must have been somewhat trembling, a little bit uncertain that he said, Lord, here I am, send me. And at that point, He's commissioned to be a prophet. 
And he's also warned how tough it's going to be. Because as he is sent, he said, well, go to this people, but you know what? They'll be endlessly hearing, but never hearing. They'll be endlessly seeing, but never understanding. And Isaiah says, Lord, how long does that have to keep up? And God says, until cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, the houses are left, he's seeing ahead to the devastation that would come when Babylon would invade. So not an easy call. Mm. This is going to be a tough ministry, Isaiah. But Isaiah goes for it because of this incredibly overwhelming encounter with the living God that changes his life. Yes, a very, very personal experience, which from what you say, that understanding, that appreciation, that realisation of God's holiness affects everything that follows. Absolutely. He is consumed now with the holiness of God. You know, holiness comes from a Hebrew word that, that means to, to separate, to cut off, to be different. We sometimes think of holiness as sort of some very religious words, but it's really saying God is utterly different from us. His standards are different. His ways are different. His heart is different. And he calls us as unholy people to line our lives up with him and to live like him, because only in doing that is where we find fullness of life and get the joy of entering into God's adventure and joining him in what he is doing. So this first section that you mentioned, the first, what, 39 chapters, I'm not sure how many years that covers. This is his message to the people about God's holiness. Is that right? Yes, and his calling them to repent and to change the way that they are living and warning them that judgment will come if they don't. And he was speaking from experience because he could see the contrast. Yeah, do you know, until we've had that personal encounter with God that's just completely overwhelmed us, really none of us have any message to share. Uh, still today, that's possible, isn't it? You know, it is possible to have an encounter with God through Jesus. And no matter what we've been and what we've done, and we, we've no idea what the issue was with Isaiah. You know, why his lips? We don't know. It's interesting. The lips that had been unclean will become the lips that God uses. So often what we use for bad, God can take, transform and use for good. And that can still happen today. And for anyone listening to this episode, it doesn't matter what we've been or what we've done, how dirty we've been. Isaiah had an encounter with the holy God that completely changed his life. But out of that being changed, he then calls others who claim to have been changed to live differently and to live holy lives themselves and warns them that if they don't change, God's judgment eventually will come. But you do say that in the next section, what it, chapters 40 to 55, something like that, this is actually looking ahead even further beyond the, the times that he was living in. Yes, he begins to look then, having in those first 39 chapters warned that judgment is coming, though, by the way, those judgment chapters are interspersed with hope, which perhaps we'll come back to in a moment. 
from chapters 40 onwards, he he begins to look to the end of the exile. Now, at this point in history, Assyria was still the great superpower. We saw in a previous episode how they actually attacked Jerusalem, surrounded, and King Hezekiah called to Isaiah, yes, this Isaiah, who encouraged them if he trusted God, God would cause Assyria to withdraw. And they did. 185,000 of their army suddenly dropped down dead overnight. Something like the plague went through them and they withdrew. But of course, Assyria would eventually want to come back, but it didn't get chance because it is overtaken by Babylon, who swallows up its empire. And it will then be Babylon who comes and who will eventually conquer Judah and Jerusalem in 586 BC, way ahead of Isaiah's time. But chapter 40 onwards, he's now prophesying ahead to what will happen when Babylon will eventually come in 586 BC, take God's people into exile, take them back to Babylon. They'll be there for the 70 years that Jeremiah prophesied, and then they will come back. And chapter 40 starts with this incredible vision of him sort of them being ready to come back. He sees them being ready to come back. And so uh, chapter 40 begins with well-known words, comfort, comfort my people, speak tenderly to Jerusalem, say her sad days are gone and her sins are pardoned. Yes, the Lord has punished her twice over for all her sins. So the sin has been purged and paid for by exile. And then he sees a messenger saying, prepare, prepare the way of the Lord. A voice crying in the desert, in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain brought low, the rough ground made level, and the rugged places a plain. And what he's seeing here is the picture of what used to happen if a king made a visit somewhere. They used to straighten out the roads and they, they would even literally bring down hills and fill valleys so that the king had this nice, smooth approach. <laughs> I always remember when I was a little boy, I, I grew up in the mining area of South Yorkshire in England. And the Queen came to visit one of our local collieries. And what they actually did was they painted the walls of the coal white. So it was all nice and pristine for her to visit. And Isaiah's seeing a little bit of a picture mm -hmm. like that, mm -hmm. a picture of a messenger going ahead saying, prepare a highway. The king's coming. His people are coming. Now, he was thinking first and foremost of how God's people would come back out of exile to their homeland. It's interesting. The New Testament picks up that message mm. and sees a deeper, a second level and uses this of John the Baptist, of the one who prepares the way for the coming now of the Lord himself to lead God's people out of the spiritual exile that they were still in and into the freedom. So Isaiah is having these flash forwards, as you called them, not, of course, realising what they really amount to. Yes, and actually, very often, what he was seeing had a meaning first and foremost. So, for example, in chapter 7, 
there's that well-known passage about Emmanuel coming and rescuing God's people. We, we hear these verses at Christmas time. Oh, absolutely. The Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and give birth to a son, and he will be called Emmanuel. And we as Christians, of course, immediately think, aha, Jesus. And indeed it is, because the New Testament gives us authority to believe that. But long before that, it actually had a first level meaning. Uh, this happened at a time when King Ahaz was afraid when, when Syria and the northern tribe of Israel were pressurizing him to join their coalition and ag against Assyria. And Isaiah told him to trust God, not to join this human alliance, and offered him a sign. And Ahaz goes very spiritual and says, oh, no, I, w I won't test the Lord. I won't ask for a sign. And Isaiah says, well, I'm going to give you a sign anyway. And it's at that point, he says, the virgin will conceive and be with a child and says before he's old enough to know the difference between right and wrong, this threat from Syria and Israel would have passed. Now, clearly, that can't have meant Jesus first and foremost. So probably what was happening at that point is he probably pointed, scholars think, to some young woman in the palace and said, listen, this young woman, because that's what the Hebrew word means there, a young woman of marriageable age, will have a child, but before that child's old enough to know the distant difference between right and wrong, this threat will have passed. So it had a first level of meaning. Mm. And yet the New Testament sees there, in that case, he was having a flash forward and didn't even know it. Now, in some of the other prophecies he has, he will have a flash forward and seem to most definitely know it, particularly when we get to the later chapters where he begins to look forward to the coming of Jesus and what Jesus does in very particular ways. Are those to be found in what sometimes are referred to as the, the servant songs? Yes. There's a whole number of songs later in us, four of them, in fact, called the servant songs in chapters 42, 49, 50, and then 52 going into 53. And it's interesting, when we look at these servant songs, they look, first of all, as if the servant could possibly be Israel. But then as he goes on, it seems to be he's talking more of an individual rather than a nation, an individual who would obey God completely and who ultimately, by the time we get to chapter 53, will give himself as a sacrifice for sinners. And of course, one of the titles of Jesus in the New Testament is the servant. He comes as a servant. In John 13, we find him acting out, being a servant, washing his disciples' feet. Paul has that beautiful passage in Philippians 2, about how Jesus did not count equality with God as something to be clung on to, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. And each time there, they're picking up this theme from Isaiah of one who would come and be the means of God rescuing his people. At first, it looked like Israel, but as it goes on, it's clear it's one 
who represents Israel. And the New Testament opens up to us, that turns out indeed to be King Jesus. So Isaiah, what, hundreds of years before Jesus is even born, has a glimpse of the kind of person Jesus is going to be. Yeah, remember I said Isaiah ministered, what, 740 to 686 BC. So 700 years in round terms. Isaiah sees some of the things that Jesus will be and do. And as many listeners will know, there's that passage particularly in Isaiah chapter 53 that has such an incredible description of the suffering that the servant would go through in order to redeem God's people. Really, you can think it it can only have been about Jesus. Just to read a few verses, surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And it goes on to talk about how he was oppressed and afflicted, led like a lamb to slaughter by oppression and judgment, taken away, assigned a grave with the wicked, with the rich in his death, that it was the Lord's will to crush him. And yet he would see offspring and prolong his days. I'd really encourage people to read through Isaiah chapter 53. And as they read that, Just see what an incredible flash forward this was of what Jesus would do for us on the cross. God's own servant sent to pay the price of our sin as the only way that we could come into a relationship with God. And at this point, Isaiah really can't be thinking of anyone or anything there in his immediate context, like in some of the other prophecies. This is one where he's clearly looking ahead to Messiah's death, a death that will be both a sacrifice and a substitute, not for his sins, he didn't have any, but for ours. And how through that death, people are healed and brought into God's wholeness. Some incredible details there about Christ's final hours on the cross. How sort of mind-blowing for you is this, this portrait of Jesus so many hundreds of years before it all happened? Well, it's just incredible, isn't it? When you think 700 years plus before this actually happened, what a prophet this guy must have been. And what it takes me back to is, you know, that experience he had in Isaiah 6 when he was overwhelmed by God's holy presence. From that point onwards, he becomes completely overwhelmed with God, completely given over to him, completely open to what God wants to do through him. So fine-tuned. And, you know, throughout church history, if you read any church history books, there are often those who've just given themselves over so much to prayer and to listening to God that they hear with incredible clarity. So for me, it's staggering. 
And for anyone who says to me, well, the Bible's all made up, isn't it? I would want to say, well, please read Isaiah 53 and please tell me how it can be that 700 years later, Jesus could die a death that fulfilled every one of those prophecies. Oh, and by the way, he couldn't control any of them. He was at the hands of the Romans who did what they want and how they pleased. And yet to every detail, these prophecies would be fulfilled. And you know, there's others as well. There's some that Jesus pick up. One of my other ones that I never cease to get staggered by is in Isaiah 61, where again, he's looking forward to Jesus and to when Jesus would go into the synagogue in Nazareth in Luke chapter four. And Jesus goes in and because he's the local boy, come back home again, they ask him, to do the Bible reading for that day. And in those days, you took the scroll, read the reading, and then just did a little commentary on it. But there were set readings, just like in some churches today have their set readings mm -hmm. for different Sundays of the year. Mm -hmm. So he went in and would have had a set reading for that day. And it just happened to be a passage from Isaiah. Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to comfort the brokenhearted and to proclaim that captives will be released and prisoners be freed. He sent me to tell those who mourn that the time of the Lord's favor has come and with it, the day of the Lord's anger against his enemies to comfort all who mourn in Israel. So that's Isaiah's flash forward of this future Messiah, Messiah. Exactly. And the Messiah himself is now quoting Isaiah. That's incredible, isn't it? How incredible is this? And Jesus reads this flash forward of what he will do, reading it, and he reads it, and, and, and then their eyes are fixed on him. Luke says they were all waiting, fixed on him. Why? Because they were waiting for his little commentary. And he says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And you'd all expect them to say, yeah, 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 but they're really not that very keen because he wants to apply it not just to Israel, but to everyone. And they really don't like that at all. He goes on to talk about how God's word came to Israel and they rejected it. And yet often it was non-Israelites like, like Naaman, a Syrian. And, and the minute he says, this message, Freedom Day, that's what he's really saying. He's mm. saying Jubilee year, Freedom Day that God promised is here. And at first they're thinking, yes. And then he says, oh, by the way, God's Freedom Day includes the Gentiles. And they say, no. <laughs> and they want to take him out to the edge of Nazareth, throw him off the edge of a very steep cliff where I've actually stood and looked down just at the edge of the town. They wanted this for them, but not for others. So, yeah, how amazing is this? These flash forwards to, yes, things that will happen immediately, things that will happen as Judah will be taken into exile, to things that will happen to when Judah will come back out of that exile to the promised land. But even further ahead, these incredible flash forwards to Jesus, the one whom got sent to bring everyone, Jew or Gentile, out of the exile that they live in, 
and to come into God's freedom. We said at the beginning, this is a major prophet, which is a reflection of how many chapters there are, how big the book is. And you could therefore be put off perhaps by even attempting it. But it sounds like it's worth diving in. It's worth really digging in deep and and, and going for it with Isaiah. Absolutely. And the great thing about Bibles these days is they break it into sections to make it easier for you to do so. I think it's worth it because Isaiah is the most quoted prophet in the New Testament. Now, that should tell us something. The books that are quoted most in the New Testament are the Psalms, Isaiah and Deuteronomy. But Isaiah is quoted from so often. And that should tell us something, that the inspired writers of Scripture themselves, as they write the New Testament, understood that there were things in this book that were so crucial, so key, so fulfilled in Jesus. So, yeah, it's a big book, but it's absolutely worth delving into. And, yeah, there are some chapters that can be a little bit heavy going at times. Well, do you know what? I probably shouldn't be saying this, but if you struggle a bit with those, skim read those (laughs) and get to some of the other good bits because sometimes some of us need those sort of helps and permissions to get into reading God's word. But a major prophet with a major message that was a message for his time, first and foremost, let us never forget that, a message of don't trust in others for help, look to God first and foremost for your help. A message that says judgment is coming, but with God there is always hope. And a message that says that greatest hope most of all, lies in the Messiah who would one day come, in Jesus, who comes to bring God's jubilee year, God's year of freedom to anyone who will believe. But lying at the heart of that, a belief that we need our lives changed, just as Isaiah's life was changed that day of his vision when the coal touched his lips and God said, your sins are forgiven for us, to know that through that suffering servant he prophesied in Isaiah 53, through believing in him, our sins too can be forgiven and we can begin a new life with God and enter into God's year of freedom and jubilee. David Tavener was in conversation with Mike Beaumont, who's written about the people of the Bible throughout the Christian Basics Bible. Catch their conversations anytime on the UCB player or with your favorite podcast provider. Just search for Bible Biogs in 30 minutes.